Welcome, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. I'm here with my colleague uh, and friend, uh, Vince Colonnais. And of course, here we have great, lively discussions about things we agree about, upon and other things we disagree about, upon. But we have a good time doing it. And hopefully, you guys will have uh, a good time watching. But today, we got a lot of things on tap for you. So I'm going to turn it over to Vince Colonnais. Yeah, thanks so much, Jason. Look, I want to talk today about the economy. We got like big numbers this week that I think are causing people to worry, to have some concern about uh, how far their money is going to go and how far their money is going. Yesterday, the Consumer Price Index report came out and said that uh, last month's jump was 5%. It actually was higher than what economists thought it would be, 4.7%, the Consumer Price Index. That's the biggest jump in that index since 2008. And additionally, uh, the uh, other numbers, if you sort of narrow it down, one of the key indicators in terms of how much inflation we have is the biggest it's been since 1992. We're looking at really dramatic numbers. And what this means, if I can just boil it down, is that things are all getting more expensive across the board. It's pretty obvious if you just go to the store, you see that the goods you buy are becoming more expensive. If you go to your local restaurant, especially if you look up and see the board or if you look on the menu, you see they've changed the prices. Things are getting more expensive. You're paying more at the pump. Uh, inflation is a burden and it's regressive, the, meaning the poorer you are, the harder it's hitting you right now. And uh, I'd like to talk today with you, Jason, just about how do we get this thing under control? How do we slow down all of this inflation and make it so that people actually get some distance out of their cash? Man, you wanted to go to something serious. I thought we were going to talk about Jeffrey Tubin. Oh, yeah, we'll talk. About, I'll talk about that. We can control ourselves on video. That's one of the features of this show yeah, as absolutely. well. Just so you know, it's a family friendly affair. It's not a Jeffrey Tubin episode, uh, but we'll get to Tubin. I promise. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I, first of all, I think it's important to, to point out everything you said is absolutely correct. Uh, inflation can be dangerous, but this was predictable. The Fed actually predicted this. And part of that is because the Fed put tons of money into the economy in order to stop a more serious inflation, excuse me, a more serious re recession. And inflation was bound to happen. When you put a bunch of money or a bunch of dollars into the economy, uh, it lowers the value of a dollar and that results um, in US companies having to pay more for imports as well. Um, and they pass that cost on to consumers. Um, also, we all know that China is the biggest exporter of goods and American companies slowed production uh, due to the, the COVID-19 virus. And I think a lot of this comes down to COVID-19. If we also look at what the stock market is doing, the stock market also believes that this is transitory. They believe that this is temporary. And that's why uh, you had record highs in the S&P 500 on uh, Thursday. Mm -hmm. Because they are not as alarmed as I think some people uh, out there are, you know, are right now. And uh, to the lesser, to a lesser extent, this could have been some of this, not very much, but I would say to a much lesser extent. Um, this is due to the pipeline hack, uh, which caused a gas shortage, which drove up prices. But right now, I think most people in the market and most economists believe that this was bound to happen, that coming out of the pandemic, we were going to have uh, you know, less supply and more demand, oh wait, less supply, more demand, or more demand, more supply, or less supply. Oh yeah, more demand, less supply. You got it. Uh, apologize about that. And that that was you know, um, 
something that was bound to happen. Jerome Powell, uh, the head of the Fed, you know, said that this was going to happen and that we shouldn't be too alarmed. There are some people who are alarmed, you know, and say that this is going to get worse. Um, you know, Larry Kudlow, for one, uh, has raised some red flags. But overall, the market isn't behaving that way. And I think that's a good sign. Um, and also, you know, I, I think that because we knew this was coming, um, it's not the alarming thing that many people, uh, that some people are making it out to be. So do you don't, you don't, you don't have a concern that this will be long lasting? Do you, you, you're with the market here? You think this is just transitory? I think for the most part, yes. I mean, of course, I can't say that, you know, um, definitively. We, we right. shall see. But, you know, I think best case scenario, this is a short-term adjustment. Uh, also, we have to remember, you mentioned 2008, which I think is really important. And that is that we've had extremely low inflation over the past decade. So some people are saying that this is literally just an adjustment of the market or the market adjusting itself. Um, because there's been almost zero inflation uh, over the past decade. And, you know, a lot of people believe that this is temporary and, and industries are, have raised prices. The industries that have raised prices right. have been the ones, and, and I can attest to this, the industries that have raised prices the most have been the industries that have suffered the most from the pandemic. So airlines, hotels, food distribution, those are the, um, the industries that have raised prices and because they were so damaged by the pandemic and by the shutdown. So this is in, in many people's mind and from what I've read, I'm not an economist, but from what I've read, it seems like it's a natural kind of adjustment. And that's where I am right now. I mean, so, but wouldn't, mean wouldn't this moment, so my concern here is wouldn't this moment be the moment where it'd be prudent to be cautious, right? So like, uh, you know, with, with everything getting much more expensive, why would we pursue, and I'm talking now about Washington, this is the area that you and I talk about a lot. Why would it be pursue another four, $6 trillion in spending, much of which would have to be borrowed in order to be established, right? You, we don't have that much revenue coming in. You've got to borrow this money in order to spend it. Uh, that's a lot more money being uh, uh, injected right into the economy. And the, the amount, the more cash that you push into the economy, the more expensive everything gets. And we've seen a lot of that already. House, you mentioned a couple of categories, which are great. You're looking, of course, at housing to lumber, which is naturally a part of that conversation and that equation. That means that fewer people can actually afford to purchase homes, which is a really important investment for many Americans to just be, that is their single biggest investment for most Americans, something that can grow in wealth for them and their family, even while they're sleeping inside of those homes. Um, you know, you look at the cost of new cars, used cars, uh, rental cars, the flights you mentioned, the hotels, everything, uh, you know, just the, the stuff you buy at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. It's all more expensive. And in fact, it's so much more expensive right now that the wage gains that people have made coming back to the market at the beginning of this year have been erased by, by inflation. So although they are technically making more money on paper, they are making now less money in real terms because that money does not go as far. That's a huge problem. And I, I think that this impulse within Washington, I think driven by the fact that one party kind of controls all the levers of 
how do we spend this money and 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 signing off on it the democrats at the moment um they feel an urgency they feel a political urgency to achieve their agenda and spend a bunch of cash but it could end up i think really hurting americans if they do that so there there's a, a couple answers to that um and again like i said i don't think there's any certainty in, in what we're discussing which in some ways makes this a fun discussion because yeah you know um I can concede some elements of what you're saying in terms of the fact that this could possibly be um, something that's long-term and the risks that you are talking about, you know, are indeed real. I, I think at the same time, what the Biden administration would answer um, is that you are correct that there is not enough revenue. So they wanna create more revenue because one of the reasons there isn't a lot of revenue is because of tax cuts. So they want to tax, um, you know, the the wealthy. They want to tax, you know, corporations. While we've had record corporate uh, profits, as yes. you and I have stated, the billionaires have become super billionaires. Excuse me, over this period. So they want to create new revenue. And this is, you know, again, why they want to pay for infrastructure, why they right. want to pay for all of these things. And in terms of, of jobs and and job, you know, and, and, and wages, um, there has been an increase um, and wages increased, you know, prior to the pandemic, but not massively. I mean, it was pretty slow pre-pandemic and corporate profits were record-breaking. So there's a lot of room for wage growth here to attract people to the market. I know this is kind of a point you haven't made yet, but I kind of did want to want to talk about this. Right. I think a lot of what people are talking about in terms of the economy is, um, well, with all of the money that we've given, it's incentivized people not to return to work. Yes. Um, and I, I think one of the things that we've seen is that we've seen record corporate profits and slow wage growth. And as a matter of fact, real wages, like you pointed out, um, during the last administration, were not growing bare at, at all. Um, but so there's room for a whole lot of, of wage growth and the wage growth we're seeing. And I think that what people are banking on is that some of that wage growth is going to be permanent and that the inflation and the rise in prices is temporary. And they're, they're hoping. And, and one yeah. of the signs, one of the signs of this, and, and I'll just, I'll kick it over to you right after this. But one of the signs during inflation that inflation is going to be a big problem is usually bank lending goes up during inflation. Right now, bank lending is decreasing. So you have, you know, the stock market seems unfazed, the banks seem unfazed or, or, or are not, you know, behaving in a way that you would in terms of uh, long-term inflation. So I, I think that right now is not time to necessarily push the panic button and not, and I know that it's, it's perfectly rational for, for the, the concerns that you have. But I don't think it's time to push the panic button yet. Yeah, the, I think the volume of investments exploded. I mean, because the money is so cheap right now that, you know, so many banks had to reel back on um, 
on uh, people who qualify for all these loans last year as the year went on because they just couldn't keep up with the volume. That's how many people were applying for new mortgages and refinancing and investing in new businesses. And it was just, it's been a bonanza because when the Fed puts rates as low as it has, of course, what you're going to do is you're going to spur a bunch of investment, meaning you're going to spur a bunch of borrowing and debt. And that infuses all that cash into the economy. Um, I guess a couple of things to, to address that you brought up. I'll start with in uh, the order that you brought them up in. Um, you talked about how the Biden administration wants to raise corporate taxes in order to make up for the revenue shortfall and also to tax wealthy people in order to make up for the revenue shortfall that would come with all their new spending. And that's true. They have said that. And they especially um, say over 10 years, I think they're using the phrase revenue neutral, but they think they can generate enough revenue in order to pay for their ambitious multi-trillion dollar plans. Even if they could do that, and I don't think they can. I, these CBO estimates are almost always entirely off, uh, no matter what the legislation is. Uh, and it's always off in a way that more, there's a lot more spending than you ever expected when you first passed the legislation. But even if they could do that, what ends up happening, especially with these corporations, is if you raise taxes on them, you and I both know who ends up airing, uh, bearing the burden of those taxes. It's the consumers of the products that those companies make, should those companies be able to stay in business, right? So for instance, this week, Chipotle has announced that because of the requirements of uh, the rising wages that they have going on in the company, uh, I think both as a product of maybe state laws that are pushing minimum wage to $15, and also just their efforts to get employees to come back to work in an environment where people are making more money on unemployment than they would be in their jobs. They are pushing those wages up to try and get people back in the door in order to prepare your burrito bowl. But they say prices are now going up as well by 4%. And that means that in the end, it becomes once again regressive. It becomes like the guy who goes up to the counter to buy the burrito bowl ends up bearing the cost of that tax hike, for instance, on Chipotle. So I, I get the, the logic, especially of why the Democrat um, sort of the, dem the, the fixed Democrat position for many years has been like, look at these corporations, they make so much money, just raise taxes if they pay their fair share, this is better for everybody. And I get the spirit behind that, but the end game is really that the customers end up paying more for those products. And that's the inflation point. That's when we start looking at that basket of goods and going, what are they paying more for? And one of those things will be, you know, not that they include Chipotle bowls in the consumer price index, but you can see how, how we get there. Um, in terms of that's inflation, it's, that's, a, that's a government imposition at that point that drives an inflationary um, impact on the customer. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's true. Um, again, every, everything you said is true. Sorry, I'm just trying to make sure my microphone is on. For those, yeah, for those who can't see, Jason's fiddling with the mic. You're trying to figure out, are you coming through the microphone or your computer? Is that what's up? Sorry, I, I muted there. He's working uh, on his mic right now. I can't see his hands. I do not know if this is a Jeffrey Tubin moment. Nope, there's, there are his hands, ladies and gentlemen. He's fine. <laughs> he stood up. His pants are on. We're good to go. My pants are on. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I apologize for, for some of the tech things here. You're good, um, man. You know, uh, I think I was coming through the computer before. I think I think you might still be. Tap that microphone that you're sitting in front of. Let me hear. It. Let me hear. It. Yeah, no, you're not. That's not the microphone we're hearing you on. We're hearing you on your computer microphone. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. Well, 
just, just to your point, and you know, uh, in the in the meantime, I'll you know while you talk, I will. Fill. He really does do it all, by the way. He's like he's a tech guy. He's like working on fixing everything. <laughs> he's doing a political conversation with me. I don't know how he does it. I'm like too much of a one track mind guy to do that. Like if yeah, my I, microphone I, was busted right now and you were talking to me, I would need you to repeat the entire conversation. Yeah. Um, no, I, actually, I, I'm totally gonna fake it. Like I heard what you were saying. But, okay. Good. No, but I, as far as Chipotle, first of all, I love Chipotle, but screw them for all the times that they charge me for asking for double chicken. How did you hear I- the? Did you hear the move this week on how to on how to hack that? You familiar with this? No, no. Okay. So what you do is you tell them you want chicken, and so when they throw the first scoop down, as soon as they do, you say, you know what? Actually, I'll take double chicken. And you have to wait until the first scoop goes down before you make the request for the double chicken, because because. Jason, if you walk in and you say, I want double chicken, you know what's going to happen. They're going to give you three quarters chicken and three quarters chicken. They're not going to give you one and one. So you got to wait till one's down because one one is down and you say, actually, no, I want double chicken. They've got to match the first scoop, man. They can't skimp you now. They've got to they got to make sure to give you a scoop that looks exactly like that. Yeah, no, I I totally need that because. um, You know, every time I'm, I'm there, I ask for double chicken. (laughs) <laughs> um first of all they give me like a half a, a half a ladle then they give me like two extra you know pieces of chicken yeah I'm like, more. I know? saw somebody else say that the real hack yeah I've given you one now I'll give you the second Please. say you want like a kind of a normal amount with just a little bit extra go for like half chicken half steak say that and the guys will never be able to nail the half proportion. They're going to give you a little bit of extra of both. And that's how you get plenty of extra meat. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm actually a big fan of, of their barbacoa, even though sometimes it's undercooked. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that. And now we just want to give a quick announcement to our uh, corporate sponsor, Chipotle. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't uh, think they'd be happy with us advocating how to hack their product in order to make sure you get a lot more I, of it. Right. Like, but this say, is driving the Vincent Jason Save the Nation actually has driven up prices at Chipotle. They've run out of products. Us. And now, <laughs> it's us. It's not inflation. Um, no, but I, I, you know, the the thing again, I, I think is um, I am with Jerome Powell on this uh, over, you know, the Larry Kudlow's of the world and the people who are making it seem like all of this is is long term and, and some of it again with some of the short term shortages um we're actually you know like with and i said that this was a very small amount of it uh of the change that we saw you know that seemed so dramatic but when you look at for example um the gas hikes you know, right. the price in, in gas, that shortage is temporary. You know what I mean? With with the hack. Well, wait, you know, wait. Th- those prices were going up pretty meaningfully, though, before the Colonial Pipeline hack. I mean, they, those were on an upward trajectory before that. I mean, not well. So we're, we're I guess we're going to disagree. Um, I don't think those prices were going up dramatically. It, it went up, you know, somewhat dramatically uh, after the last... Um, after the Colonial Pipeline hack, because 50% of the East Coast, you know, where people probably do the, well, not the most, but do a whole lot of driving. 
Right. Um, and you have a whole lot of traffic. Screw you, DC traffic as well. Um, you know, that's where, you know, you had these big shortages. So um, that on top of things, and I apologize if I'm unclear because I'm still thinking about why my microphone. Wait, I think it's working now. Tap it. Tap the microphone. Nope, you're not. Well, if it is working, you're not using it as a source right now. Hold on. Let me let me look. We're going to figure this out. Should I play some elevator music? Oh, or you know what? You're right. All right. So now I think it's working. Now, Tap it. Let me see. I think it is. Yep. That's the one, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Here we Jason go. Nichols in, in stereo. Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm I'm an economist. I'm a tech guy. I'm all of these things today. Um, and guess what? I can teach you about critical race theory if you need. Um, <laughs> Let's save that. We'll do that in another show. Yeah. Eh, maybe. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's been so abused now that it's, we'll see. Hey, if you want us to actually talk about that, you know, yeah. like you said in the, in the, um, the in trailer trailer, yeah. you know, leave it in the comments. Vince will read it. Cause I don't read comments anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll address that. But right now we're talking about the economy. Yes, we are. I think that again, um, there's no serious indication that this is going to be a long-term thing. And I think the, the uh, rise in wages, as I think you and I both agree, that's a good thing. The rise in prices, I believe, is going to level off. God, and, I hope you're right. And it, yeah, I mean, I mean, judging by some of these indicators, the banks and the stock market, you know, and, you know, listening to the so-called experts, which, you know, the so-called experts can be so-called wrong. A lot. That's true. That's true. You know? um, but listening to those those three sources, um, the fact that the stock market was so unfazed and not. But wait, let me let me just offer a counterpoint to that. Bit, um, you know, not even the least bit hesitant. Right. I think says something. But wait, let me let me just offer one counterpoint to that. Sure. 2008. I mean, like, look at the reality. It's just like, how often does the stock market kind of just go on undeterred when, you know, when it comes to, you know, and not and, and not seeing the writing on the wall, not caring, just plowing ahead, you know, the banks doing the same thing, whatever they can get away with, just plowing, just getting ahead. And then there's like one voice in the wilderness who's like, hey, you guys know that like a subprime mortgage like bubble is about to explode everywhere and people are just ignoring it. And then it does. And then it really yeah. does. So I think that in politics and in, in economics, sometimes, you know, the conventional wisdom, especially, especially on Wall Street, it feels like when it's all headed in one direction and everyone says nothing to see here, there's nothing to worry about. I mean, that is a, that is a time when I start getting worried. That's when I'm like, I don't know. It's just like this. This can't be sustained forever. It doesn't seem like it. So I, I, I agree with you. I think in 2008 or prior to 2008, even 2007-ish, probably maybe even 2006, but right. definitely 2007, people were starting to recognize that there were dark winds ahead. You know, I, I think that that was, the writing was on the wall there. It wasn't like a voice in the background. People were like, oh crap, you know, we're going to have a problem. Um, and I still, of course, remember uh, former President Obama's uh, inauguration speech. It was not a happy speech. 
And, you know, Obama was a master of giving happy speeches, you know, but that speech was like, we're in trouble for a while. You know what I mean? If you listen to what he said there, that was not, you know, hey, you know, something, you know, it could be something, but we can handle right. it. It was like our economy, you know, is in a whole lot of trouble. We've got some dark days ahead. Yep. And I think even prior to that, if you listen to what George W. Bush was saying, I mean, he, in so many words, I mean, I don't think it was a mea culpa, but he certainly was like, yeah, we're in trouble. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was he, years in the making. It's, it was a, it was a bipartisan affair, actually. Yeah, what a disaster he, the economy ended up being. And then the two of them, I mean, think about, <laughs> think about what they were doing as they had to come into, as Obama was coming into office, they were bailing everybody out. They had to orchestrate a bailout in order yeah. to try and rescue the economy. I mean, it was yeah. a disaster. Oh, well, we're going to disagree on that. Um, on it being a disaster? Yeah, on the on the bailouts and, the and you know, stimulating the economy and the things. No, that, I'm that saying, done. no, what I'm saying is that it was a disaster that it got to that point. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I, I just don't want to see something like that happen again. And I feel like, you know, now just the, the mountains of debt that are being incurred both privately and publicly. Uh, and the inflation that's running out of control, right? It seems to be for sure running out of control. Hopefully you're right. Hopefully Wall Street's right. Hopefully Jerome Powell's right. It's transitory. But let me switch to jobs because you mentioned jobs a moment ago yeah. and the conversation so, around. Go ahead. You have something else? Before we say? go there, I, I just want to say uh, one thing, you know, that, you know, we, we wouldn't be Vincent Jason if we didn't bring some partisan nonsense into this conversation. But one of the things that I think that a lot of people on the, on the left um will point out and i'm not to be honest i'm not 100 with them on this but one thing that we can i think if we're being honest agree upon and a lot of people bring it up on the left is everyone is scared of deficits but it seems like they're only scared of deficits when and they want to talk about fiscal austerity yes when democrats are in charge when, when the Trump, other party's in power. Yeah, when, when Trump increased the deficit by almost $8 trillion, more than Obama, you know, everybody was quiet. But now it's like, oh, we're scared of deficits. Yes, no, there's a ton of phoniness. There's a and, ton of phoniness. I just, all I care about is like, does the average guy get screwed? That's really actually right. at the bottom of my concern. And, I, and I'm and, 100% with you on that. I, I, to be honest, Deficit, deficit spending, of course, eventually is very bad. But in the short term, I, I don't always think it's the worst thing in the world. And so was I freaking out when Trump was, was running up debt? I didn't see coronavirus coming, but um, I, I didn't see that coming. So I, right. you know, but hindsight is twenty twenty. At the time, was I tripping about that? No, there, was a, there were a whole lot of other Trump things that I was upset about. Sure. And that deficit spending was not one of them. Yeah, but yeah. What, again, but, there, there is like some hypocrisy on both sides. And I think you're right that both sides complain about deficits and sometimes want to talk about fiscal austerity right? Uh, when the other side isn't in power and wanting to implement yeah. their agenda and spend money. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a, it's a kind of a classic political thing. It's like everybody throws everything against the wall to see what sticks, right? Like right. I need to figure out what's the what's the vulnerability I can take advantage of in order to defeat an agenda I disagree with. Um, on the issue of jobs uh, and the fact that people are being paid uh, in excess of the amount that they would be paid when they return to the market, 
you know, one thing that we've seen um, in, uh, for instance, there's a region in Minnesota where the, the wages have now risen so consequentially because small businesses are trying desperately to get people to respond, to return to work, but people are not returning to work, even though the wages are actually higher than what unemployment pays in the region. And that they've made, so many people have made a conscious decision that actually now, even though I could make more going back to work, uh, I prefer not being back at work and getting the paycheck. And I think people are making, honestly, rational decisions when they do that. Uh, maybe at some personal philosophical expense. I mean, remember that there is dignity in work, I think, that that people derive. And it, that's hard to measure sometimes, even for the people who are, are sitting without a job right now. But there's there's something I think deep I think there's de something deeply important in a good day's work and and being able to provide for your family it just it's it's good for your soul, but um, you know I don't think that it's really uh, a point of dispute it may be between you and I but I don't think it should be a point of dispute that the government is keeping people out of the economy that they shouldn't I understand why we had extended unemployment benefits last year it made sense. And then going into the beginning of this year, but now when the writing is so clearly on the wall, and it's not just conservative economists who are saying this, it's people like Jason Furman, who worked for Obama and is obviously a Democrat, uh, and, um, and a number of other Democrat economists who've said this to the discomfort of the White House, by the way, that all of this money that we're paying people in excess of what we normally would is keeping them home. And so there's a phenomenon happening in the country right now that I think is creating a really interesting case study, unfortunately involves actual people's lives. But when we look back on it, we'll be able to say, okay, what role does the government play in keeping people out of the workforce? And Republicans, 25 governors, I believe so far, have made the decision to stop taking the extended unemployment benefits. They said no more. And um, all of them, I believe, and if or close to all of them, have also said, once again, we are no longer waiving the requirement that you look for work while you're on unemployment. You've got to look for a job and prove to our unemployment offices that you're doing that. Interestingly, I see this week that a bunch of Democrat governors have now reinstituted work search requirements. They're not waiving the extended unemployment, but they are putting work search requirements back in play. Um, Jason, I think that there's beginning to be somewhat quietly a bipartisan acknowledgement that the government is paying people to stay out of the workforce and we have to fix this. Um, you know, I, I think I'm I'm going to mostly agree with that, that, of course, you know, with, um, you know, and, and again, this kind of goes to the to the wage hike situation. I think it's good that that wages get raised um, and that wages rise. But I do also think that there is the possibility I will acknowledge, I'll say there is the possibility that this will create inflationary pressure. You know what I mean? If you raise wages uh, in order to um, incentivize somebody to get back into the workforce. And I haven't looked at the workforce participation numbers or the labor force participation numbers. I'm not sure where they are right now. Um, I've heard that a lot of that argument that a lot of you know economists are making and particularly you know, some of the more conservative economists are making um, is overstated, you know, um, but I think we are getting to the point it, you know, I think we can both agree we are getting to a point where our economy is strong, you know, with some of this and I understand we're talking inflation and all of that but 
you know, we're at 6% unemployment right now, I think maybe even a little, little below, but I think we're at about 6%. Um, you know, we know at the height of the pandemic, we were close to 15% unemployment. Um, we are turning a very good corner. Um, and, you know, the stock market is robust. We're, we're looking like we're in a decent place. It might be time to start rolling some of those things back, particularly the work requirements. Um, you know, you have to be looking for work uh, rather than collecting unemployment. Um, so the work requirements I'm 100% for. Um, I actually like things that drive wages up in the short mm -hmm. term. So I'm not necessarily going to argue against the, the $300 uh, supplement that the federal government has given. I understand the, the Republican states, uh, Republican run states and why they're, you know, scaling them back. I totally right. get that argument. Um, but I, again, because, and I'm just trying to be, you know, I want to put my Swami hat on. I still believe that this inflation is temporary uh, and wage hikes will be uh, long-term that right. I like things that raise wages. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you um, again, theoretically, because I what I want is people to make more money and, and have that money go further. Right. So you, less inflation, higher wages. That would be the perfect world. Right. Um, but at the same time, when we artificially stoke wage hikes, which is what's happening right. with this system, then there's two impacts. You mentioned inflation. That matters a lot. The other one is automation. And. I saw this week the former McDonald's CEO said that with wage hikes being what they are right now and the pressure and, and the difficulty, especially that entry-level jobs have at finding labor right now, but those job shortages are everywhere, but entry-level jobs included. What's happening is that McDonald's, which has already been going through this, you've seen it. If you've been to a McDonald's, like me, I'll admit, I, I'm, I'm there with some frequency. I've got a, I've got a seven year old. The chicken nugget deal is good. Stop, bug, <laughs> stop bugging me about this. Um, oh, well, look, we're 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 very, uh, you know, high class. So we only do Chick Fil A. You know, oh. we don't we don't do McDonald's. We do Chick Fil A nuggets. Good for you. The nuggets, those are good. Class folks. No, I'm kidding. My kids had a happy meal the other day. Good Go man. Ahead. Good man. So anyway, the point is like all of a sudden now when you go to McDonald's, they want to have robots take your order in the drive through. This is the move. They want to move it to an automated system there. And so what it means is like fewer jobs, fewer jobs. And you're seeing this happen everywhere from the, the touch screens at your grocery store to the to the automated jo uh, jobs at McDonald's like we're talking about. And so when you artificially inflate wage pressure, like where you're like, oh, now it's more expensive to hire employees. How rapidly are our companies going to be sprinting into the arms of automation? And that is, you don't get that back. That's right. that's like Absolutely. that's like forget saying we got to raise wages. That guy just got has a zero wage now. Now he's on the job market looking for something. Yeah. So here here's uh, where I'm going to disagree with you. And automation, first of all, when we look at the basics of capitalism, right? It is you know, essentially when we break it down, corporations want to know how can they increase profit yes. and decrease their overhead. And a lot of times that means, you know, how can I make Vince Colonnais do three jobs, give right. him a $10,000 raise, but eliminate 
two other jobs that would have costed me, you know, $150,000. Sure. You know, so, you know, Vince feels like, okay, well, I got a $10,000 raise, but, you know, I'm barely seeing my daughter and I'm, you know, barely getting sleep at night. Right. And then, you know, I don't have to pay those, but, you know, you're satisfied because you got the money, a little bit of money, but I've eliminated, you know, two jobs that pay, you know, $75,000 each. Totally. So again, automation, my, my point there is automation is part of capitalism. As long as we have technology here, I mean, and, you know, we can't, I understand you're saying that about McDonald's, but, you know, have you been to the grocery store in the last 10 years? Exactly. You know, I mean, I don't think that's going to hasten it. I think that technology is hastening, uh, you know, uh, automation anyway. I think that's coming. There's no way to avoid it. We have to find other ways. And I think this is one of the things, you know, in the temp, you know, another temporary fix. Right. Um, in terms of infrastructure, this is why like things like an infrastructure bill would be so important. I think it, it would create some new jobs. Now, I think you and I might be switching parties here, or at least traditionally. <laughs> here's here's what's going on. So the most popular job in any state in America, most of the time is uh, commercial driving. Right. So yeah. in most states, like the, the number one job in any given state in terms of the number of people who do it is commercial driving. So truckers, big one. And we are heading pretty fast towards automation uh, of those industries to the point that we will have self-driving trucks. We're not yeah. that far off. I mean, yeah, we're no, getting we're, we're definitely getting closer. I think they were doing a pilot in California, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And you've got like, you know, Elon Musk and, and what Tesla is trying to do. And they've got the you know, they're trying to create these these semi trucks that are electric and you know, and, and he's already working on self-driving technology. And I mean, we've got to think really clearly before we disrupt su such a prominent labor market. Like we're just going to like, is, is, real, is the goal of capitalism to like just roll over and let it happen and then have people's lives ruined? I don't think so. I mean, capitalism is a tool in our tool belt in terms of how we enhance people's lives. So we should like think clearly about whether or not you know, I mean, government, the government regulates also everything. Every industry has some sort of regulatory burden they have to clear. Most of them do, so especially the ones that involve things where your, your life is at risk potentially as you do the job. But government regulation is all over the place. My, I'm a, not opposed to government regulation. We should have it. It should just be smart. It should be intelligent. And it should be for the advancement of human flourishing within the United States. And we should consider capitalism a tool. The cap capitalism itself is not the end goal. Capitalism is a tool towards the broader end goal of having a flourishing society. And it's done really well in our tool belt to enhance that. But when you're watching as like millions of jobs are about to be destroyed by this thing that's on the, that's on the horizon, we should at least pause and have a conversation and say, okay, maybe we should stop that. Yeah. Maybe, well, maybe we should figure out a way to sensibly um, uh, move in that direction without throwing millions of jobs, millions of, of hardworking Americans' lives into complete chaos. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I have the exact policy prescription. I wouldn't pretend to. Um, I, would, I would tell you if I had one. I don't. But I do think it's worth thinking about in a, like a completely open-minded way and not accelerating our path to that moment because that's what the government's doing right now. I mean, whether we like it or not, I realize this all started with good intentions, but 
if you have this thing where you're paying people to stay out of the workforce, and then all of a sudden, all these companies have to make a decision, either I raise my wages, or I eliminate the jobs entirely and consolidate them into one or two people like you're talking about and eliminate a bunch of others, or I consolidate them into a robot who operates off of artificial intelligence. That's not a good outcome. Yeah, no, I, and, and we agree on that. The thing where the thing that we disagree is that uh, the, the idea that um, this $300 uh, unemployment benefit and all that and the raise, rising wages, that that's what's pushing anima uh, animation, automation. I think automation, we've seen that on, you know, a, a crazy rise for the past, you know, 15 years. Um, and we're seeing it all around us. You know, you go to CVS, you go to the totally. grocery store, you go to all those things. And what I'm saying is that capitalism is going to do capitalism. It's always going to be, how do I uh, escape paying those other people? And if I can, if I can get out of paying Vince too, I'll get out of that as well. If I can get a machine to flip burgers and get a machine to do all these things, and I pay a one-time cost of a hundred thousand dollars rather than a hundred thousand dollars every year, and all I need really is somebody to learn how to fix the machine every now right. and again, or yes. or press play, or maybe I can do it from my phone at home and I can do it, like. You know, I, I think that those things are going to happen. Self-driving trucks, all those kinds of things. We have to find ways. Um, and I agree with you, both the government and the market. Um, we can't leave it up to the market, but certainly the government has to find ways uh, to, I don't think we can outlaw automation. Like, there, I just don't think we can do that. But at one thing, or, or try to slow it down, I'm, I'm just not sure that there is a regulatory measure that we can do that with. But the one thing I do think we can do um, is try to find ways to make sure that human beings are useful or, or in particular industries. Try to create new jobs. Try to create, uh, and, and part of that is just problem solving. Like there are so many issues in our country that need to be fixed. Um, and we need to find more creative ways to use human labor. Um, we've done that throughout history. You know, automation, this is not a new argument. I mean, it was the same thing. What's gonna happen to the farm workers when you introduce the cotton gin? You know, what's gonna happen like the industrial revolution What's going to happen to, you know, this worker when a machine can do it? That was the old the old legend of John Henry or whatever. Was it John Henry? Oh, yeah. Right. John Henry versus the uh, the machine. You know, the machine. So, again, yeah. this, this is something that I think has always been an argument uh, since we've had technology. That's true. But we haven't but we haven't had people always overcome that displacement, though. So in the over the last half century, especially as we've watched all of the jobs that were once in the United States be exported and, and automated, um, like well, export exporting jobs and automating them are different. I think those are two I'm saying, but I'm saying those things happen in concert and the end result is really sad towns across America sure. where people have been left and these, and basically you've got cities 
that are husks of their once former greatness that um, where people are making less real money than they did uh, back then. Um, families are broken up. Drugs have taken over their communities. And I don't think that that's human flourishing. And so like when I, when you see something else on the horizon, you're like, oh God, like it's about to get worse. It's, I just think it's worth taking a breath and being like, okay, do we make the argument that like, well, it's capitalism. It's like, you know, there's businesses are always going to make decisions like this. You can't get in the way of capitalism. No, Hey, I I never said we can't get in the way of capitalism. (laughs) You're talking to the person, you know, I would say I'm a humanistic capitalist, but some people would probably call me a socialist, but you know, I'm not, I'm not there. What Uh what I am saying is that under our, our current structure, like it's going to be really hard to find a way to regulate automation or to, because in a lot of ways that's saying stop technology. And I I just don't think that there's a way to do that. I'm not even necessarily against it. I think we're we're like-minded. I just don't think that there's a way to actually do that. I mean, for instance, your car, its speedometer goes up to probably 130, 140 miles an hour. I don't know. It depends. You know, it's like, but you can't do that. Actually, you're not allowed to. There's a law that says you're not allowed to do that. You're, you have to stay uh, at the speed limit or just under 10 miles over. Everyone knows this, but if you yes. don't know it, that's actually the rule. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, so yeah, we have government limitations on things that exist because, you know, we could have the Autobahn if we wanted, we could, we could establish that, but we don't, we've, we've imposed it. So, you know, on federal highways, the United States government, for instance, this is just off the top of my head, but the United States government could say, yeah, no, there are no robots allowed to drive on federal roads. You can't on the interstate highway system, you you have to have a human behind the wheel. That's the law. We don't care that the robots exist. Mm-hmm. And um, it could make decisions like that. So, you know, it's enti- everything, all of this is possible. It's entirely possible. Yeah. It's just a matter of having, having people who are willing to think about it honestly. And the problem with Washington is the primary motivator in DC among both parties is the service of special interests and the people who have money and the kind of conversation you and I have are having right now and the kind of people we're looking to benefit through this conversation do not have a seat at that table. Right. They, their money is not represented there. Their voice is not represented there. And if it is, it's a pretty rare occurrence, actually, because for the most part, it's the industries whose fortunes are at stake that have the controlling voice in those conversations among both parties. And fixing that is has always been and is a critical issue. No, I, I agree. Um, and I, you know, I have to concede that I think your your um, your example of the of the the federal roads and and things like that. I, you know, I, I think that's actually a, a decent idea, something that should be explored. But one of the things, um, and this is just changing the subject really quickly because you brought up an interesting. Um, metaphor metaphor simile i'm not sure if you said like but certainly metaphor um or we'll we'll go with metaphor where you (laughs) talked about the speed limit right and just recently i heard that as a comparison um i heard that very same metaphor and it was used by comedian cat williams yeah and one of the things he said that i thought was so interesting they asked him about cancel culture because um, I think it was Dave Chappelle was somebody who decried cancel culture, said it's silly, we shouldn't be doing this, uh-huh. particularly to comedians. 
we tell jokes, we push boundaries. That's what right. we do. And Cat Williams, who I think is very much a boundary pushing comedian, had a really interesting answer. First of all, I, I don't believe in cancel culture altogether, but that's a different story. Um, one of the things that Cat Williams said is no one likes the speed limit. Mm -hmm. No one likes the shoulder or the or guardrails. Right. But they're there for a reason. And there are boundaries and there are limits, you know, that and no one likes the fact that if you go over the speed limit, you might get a ticket or, you know, if you drive recklessly, it could be even worse. Yeah. Um, and I think his point is that no one likes consequences for transgressing boundaries. If you're going to transgress a boundary, then you got to understand that there may be consequences. Right. And, and I thought that that was a really interesting way for someone who I think is very much a boundary pushing comedian yeah. for him to look at it. And it was a very mature way to look at it. Not, you know, um, and we don't have to get, obviously we don't have time for a long conversation about it, but I wish, I wish we did. Cause I, I really, I, I, I unfortunately have to go, but I saw that video I actually saw it when you shared it. And I, I, I understand the argument. I understand that like, Hey, like there, there are, there's rules of decency for a reason and people should abide by them. But like at the same time, it kind of felt like cowardly that cat Williams was like, was like kind of, abandoning his own edginess in order to suck up to this kind of new culture of, of censorship, which is, it's not, it's definitely not what it used to be like for comedians. There used to be such wide, such wide boundaries. And especially what Dave Chappelle has been talking about is like, you know, working on material, like when you're getting started and you're trying to work out a routine and get it up and running. I mean, not everything's going to hit, not everything's going to work. And so what it takes is like getting up on stage and trying it out with a crowd and seeing what people actually laugh, laugh about when they laugh, Dave Chappelle's been saying, that's kind of a sign that you've tapped into something. That's that that's when you're, when you're sort of, sort of exploring the bounds of decency and what works, that's about the best way to establish it. You do it in front of an audience and find out if you can get a, a good reaction. And if you do, it's a clear sign that that's the kind of thing in that specific career that you're striking something. The problem is that among for Chappelle and others is like when you're nowadays, when guys are working on material, there's like people who have like their cell phones out and they'll try and record something and then they'll take you out of context. They'll drop you into the middle of a debate. Like a, it's like a political debate. One where we measure politicians by completely different standards than we measure comedians. And that's just, that's just wrecking everything. And what it's done is, it's made comedians into a bunch of gross little conformers instead of store, sort of edgy, truth-telling, soul-touching people. And so I, I disagree. See, well, first of all, if you watch Chappelle's material, yeah, he's still pushing boundaries. If you yeah, watch, because he's got no, but, he, but hold on, not, okay. not just push, not just Chappelle. Like I have not seen a comedian who I think was, you know, you know, kowtowing to you know, some interest that they didn't believe in. You know what I mean? I think that there are comedians out there, there are feminist comedians who believe in certain things. So they're gonna tell certain kinds of jokes. There are, you know, comedians who, you know, tell jokes about race one way or the other. One of the things I've, Bill Burr does this thing about white women. You know, I don't know if you saw Bill Burr's thing about white women, hilarious. He pushed a boundary there. Some people got touched and were yeah. like, you know, we're angry about it. And, you know, to me, it's like, 
And I and I thought it was it was hilarious. Yes. It pushed a boundary. But there are, but you got to understand there are guardrails and there are boundaries. And not that you can't push them, but there could be consequences. That's all right. it is. And and I'll tell you right now, as we wrap up, I have a, you know, I have a cousin who went to prison one time and we were talking, and I was like, man, it's so messed up that you're in jail for this and that. And he was being accused of another crime at the same time. And he was like, he, he cut me off and I'll never forget this. He was like, no, I did this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I knew what I was getting into. You know what I mean? And, and it taught me, oddly enough, something about responsibility. He took responsibility for the crime he committed. He was right. like, I, I did this. He was, you know, fighting another case where he's, and he actually was found not guilty of that. He's like, I didn't do that one. And that's yeah. why I'm upset. But I, you know, they want their time. I, I did got the that. crime. I got you know, that. And I if understand. you and if you commit a crime, you should be treated that way. I just think that criminalizing thought is the dangerous road we're going down. And and as a result, it it's people are scared to even speak their minds. It's not a good culture. It's not healthy. Yeah, but, but no you one's going I, to jail. No one's going to jail for thought. I, I haven't seen it yet. You know what they, I mean? They shouldn't. They shouldn't. Um, and they shouldn't. Absolutely. Um, but could you have some career consequences by telling a Holocaust joke or, you know, uh, a white comedian like uh, Bill, uh, was it Richards? Somebody Richards? Uh, Michael Kramer. Richards. Michael Richards going up and calling a guy an N-word in a way mm -hmm. that wasn't even funny. Right. You know, um, were there career consequences to that? Yes. And, I, and, you know, Michael Richards has been back since then, by the way. It wasn't a life sentence. You know, Jerry Seinfeld has brought him back. Did he? I, I thought that his, I thought he kind of fell off. I mean, he, yes, he exists. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, that he's the guy who's pretty, pretty famous. A lot yeah. of these guys, the ones like you mentioned, Chappelle. Chappelle's got a lot of runway space because he's established. He's got so much um, talent for one, and he's got such a great career. He's in such. He's in the. He's in the power seat, so he can make a lot of big decisions. A lot that most of us can't. Um, and but anyway, it's it's fascinating. We should keep this conversation yeah. going. We'll, Absolutely, we'll do it again I know. Yeah, I know. We have to. Uh you know, not take our audience too deep into deep water. Uh, <laughs> we had a great conversation today. If you like what you saw, or if you don't like what you saw, press like, subscribe, <laughs> argue with us in the comments. Amen. Tell us why we're wrong. Tell us why we're right. Um, we, you know, Vince will certainly read those and uh, look for us on, on any podcast platform, YouTube. Uh, I think we're on Facebook. Are we on Facebook? We're all over the place. Yeah, Facebook too. Facebook too, anywhere you can find us, uh, definitely uh, subscribe to the show. Vince and Jason, save the nation. We are going to save you from inflation. That's right. Peace. I'll see you guys later.